So as I said, we're going to start a series going through the book of Exodus, and you might say, why Exodus? Why would we choose a book uh, such as Exodus? Well, simply put, because we went through Genesis a couple years back, so the next book would be Exodus. You could say that. But people might say, well, Exodus, it, it seems kind of distant from us. It's events thousands of years in the past. It seems removed from us. Why would we study the book of Exodus? Well, there's good reasons, I think, to study the book of Exodus. When we open up the book of Exodus, obviously, it continues the story that we see in Genesis of God's people and how he develops God's people, and we see the truth of who he is. It picks up that story about how God saves his people. But you can also see other things that we can pull from the book of Exodus that helps us. We see the truth of who God is, that when we read Exodus, we see God revealing himself, and so we get a glimpse of his nature. We get a glimpse of his character and his love for his people, and so it's good to read Exodus because we see who he is. We see who God is through that book. We also, when we read the book of Exodus, we see his redemption story played out. We see how God saves his people. And if you ever read the Bible and the rest of the Bible, after Exodus, how people talk about God is by referring to the events of Exodus. That this is our God who saves us. This is our God who pulled us out of Egypt. This is our God who loves us so much and orchestrates events for our good. And then finally, why would we study Exodus? Well, because we see example after example of people staying true to God and living out their faith in the story of Exodus. And it gives us these examples. It gives us these calls to be true as well. And it points to the one who was the perfect servant, who was always true, Jesus Christ. So we have good reasons to study the book of Exodus. So with all that said, let's read Exodus chapter 1 as it picks up the story of God's people. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. It's going to be on the screen behind us. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come and let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to inflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Phytham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, and the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one whom, whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puha, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and, 
and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. When you read this account in Exodus 1, there's a lot of narrative going on, a lot of story building going on. It's setting the stage, but what do we pull out of it? And I would suggest this thing, that we can pull out uh, this fact, that God is at work as we live our faith. That when you read this, we get this big picture view of these events going on with God's people, but even though God's not necessarily mentioned, it's implicitly kind of stated that God is at work in these events. And so we can get this big view of God's event at work in these events, and we see these circumstances going on that God is still at work in the big and the small, and at the same time, we see people living out their faith. And so I would say this is a call for us that we see the truth that God is at work as we live our faith. That God controlling the, the history and organizing things is true, but also is true that we're called to be faithful to what he has told us to do. And so God is at work as we live out our faith. And when we read this, it starts off kind of picking up where the story of Genesis left off. And we see God at work in these events. So if you remember the story of Genesis, is, is kind of charting the course of Abraham and his family, God's people. And we get to Jacob, um, and he has these, these 12 sons, and they, uh, they, uh, the, the, his favorite one, of course, is Joseph, who gives this special coat to, made his brothers jealous. They betrayed him. They sold him to slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. A famine strikes, and by that time, God has shown favor to Joseph, and he's risen through the ranks, and now he's top dog in Israel. And so uh, the people of God, Jacob's family, go to Egypt to get food, and who greets them? It's their long-lost brother who they sold in slavery, and he welcomes them, and the people of God are saved. That's kind of setting up the, the end of Genesis in a nutshell, if you will. And so this connects that because now it's saying, hey, the people of God, the people of Jacob, Israel, has now come in to Egypt and they've planted their life there. They've lived there. And it says all, uh, Joseph dies and his brothers dies. That first generation dies out and, and they multiply and greatly increase. And we can see God at work in these events simply because we can look back at the life of Joseph. And in Genesis, and how God was at work in those events. But we also see how God is fulfilling promises just in this first little part. That one of the great promises that God gave to Abraham and, and kept on giving to his people is that they would multiply, that they would be a great nation, that they would be a great people. And so here in this first kind of little part, we see that the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Already we see God working as they are in Egypt, safe in Egypt, being grown strong as he's fulfilling his promise to make his people a great nation. But we see God at work in these events because we remember how they got there and how they're kept safe there and why they were granted this safe status in Egypt in the first place. That when we think of the life of Joseph, and the ups and downs his life went to secure a place for 
for Israel, his, his family, we see God at work in these events. That even when they don't seem to make sense, even the, the big events that are turning kind of nations or even the small personal things, we see God at work in these things. Because he's bringing about that good for his people. He's bringing about uh, the, wel- the good welfare for his people. And so we, this shouldn't surprise us, though, just from reading this, that God is at work in events. When we look at throughout the history of our own lives, we see that true. When we look through the Bible again and again, we see God at work in these big and small. We see him fulfilling prophecies. We see him moving nations in such a way that he fulfills his promises. We see the truth that God is at work in big events, that God is at work in our life, events in people's lives, that he's bringing about fruition to his things. We just celebrated Christmas a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things we focused on was the fact that God fulfilled all these prophecies to bring about his Savior, to bring about Jesus, and that God is at work in these events, both big and small, to orchestrate these things. And so we just look at the life of our Savior, and we see how God is at work in these events, that God actually can move Roman governors to issue censuses so that Jesus is born in the village he's supposed to be born in. That God can work the history in such a way that it fulfills these prophecies. And so we know this is true, that God is at work. And he was at work in the people of God back then. He's working in in the life of our Savior, and he's at work in our own lives as well. That when you look upon this and we see God at work, we should realize that that God who's building up Israel, having them greatly increase and multiply, giving them a safe place to live for years and years in Egypt, is the same God who loves us. He's the same God who's at work in us. Sometimes that we, have, we can be honest, that's hard to believe. Because we look around at the events in the world, we look around maybe in the events of our, the events of our own life, and we could, how could this be possible that God is present and God is working in these things, but we hold fast to this truth because we see his nature and we see who he is and how he loves us, that God is at work in our lives. And he's using these events in our lives to grow us. He's using these events of life to make us who he wants us to be. That when you look around in your life and you realize, why am I here? That he has placed you exactly where he wants you to be for this season, for a reason. That he's working in your life. That he hasn't forgotten you. That if God has promised something to you, which he has to all of his people who know him, that he loves us and cares us and he's working all things for our good, that is true. And so no matter where you are in your life, God has not forgotten you and he's working in your life. He's working through these events. And we see this nature of God just on how he's growing the people of Israel. We can ask, yeah, but what happens when life doesn't go well, when there's suffering that we experience, is God even at work in that? I think this text tells us yes. Because when we read the next little session, uh, section of this text, we see things take a turn for the worse. At the beginning, they say, hey, Israel is doing great. They're greatly increasing. They're multiplying. They're living great in the land of Egypt. And then what does it say? Now there arose a new king who does not know 
Joseph. He doesn't remember Joseph anymore, the, per- the person who saved them from famine. He doesn't remember why the Israelite people are even in Egypt in the first place. And so things take a turn for the worse. He starts oppressing the people of Israel. Well, I mean, you can read this. It's almost like this new king kind of wanted to shore up his power base. And so he picked an enemy and said, hey, these Israelites, these people in our land, they're growing strong and they could be dangerous. They could rise up against us. If our enemies came against us, maybe they would pick the sides of our enemies. And so we need to watch out. And so he gets afraid and he makes them slaves. He oppresses them. And when you read this account, I mean, it's really emphatic about how they oppress the people of Israel, that they make them work in slaves and all they do. And it talks, and it focuses so much on how they were ruthless. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made their work as slaves. And so you just get the sense of how they're being oppressed. You get this, these, these, these words, again, work and work and bitterness and, and ruthlessness. And it's just the, the Egyptians were oppressing the people of Israel. And so it was not a good situation. They were suffering. Well, you get this hint that God is still with them, as it says, the more they were being oppressed, the more they increased. You get this hint. That, they, that God was still with them and working in this situation. That they were experiencing this pain and makes us ask this question that if you are a Christ follower for any, long, any length of time, we probably have asked this question, why does God allow suffering for his people? This is the people of God. This was the nation he chose out of all nations. He was going to set them up, be the example. They were going to be the light upon the hill, which the whole world is going to come to and see how great it is through them. But now they're in Egypt and they're suffering. And we can take that example and put it to our own lives and say, why would God allow suffering for his people? Why would he let them go through hard times? I think there's lots of reasons why God allows suffering. And we can just look at this context and we see some examples of that. I mentioned the example of Joseph that sets up the whole story of Exodus. And talk about a guy who suffered. Betrayed by his brothers. Thought dead by his dad. Sold into slavery. Falsely accused. Falsely imprisoned. Forgotten about by the guy he helps get out of prison. And yet, in the end, he raises, he's, he's, he, he comes second in the whole kingdom of Egypt under Pharaoh. He suffered. And when he looked into the faces of his brothers, the brothers who put him through, into slavery... The brothers who told his dad for over 20 years that he had been killed by a wild animal. The brothers he now was in place to exact revengeance, vengeance against. What does he say to them? In Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He looked at them and said, I have suffered at your hands, and you meant evil against me. But God actually meant it for good, because God can use suffering 
to bring about his plan. And through that suffering, now here I am in a place where he can invite the people of Israel into Egypt where they're saved from a famine. So just that example, the context, we see how God can use suffering to bring about his plan. He can bring about salvation for people. That he uses suffering to grow them. As I mentioned, that in the midst of oppression, in the midst of the people of Israel being experiencing suffering, they multiplied even more. And it's an interesting fact that when you look at the church, it has experienced times of persecution, it has experienced times of suffering, and what happens during that time? Does the church die out? Does the church fade away? No, the church explodes. That when suffering is brought on people, the people of God seem to all of a sudden hold to the faith stronger, and people see the reality of it, and the church grows. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher in the 1800s, said this, Whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it, as he did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites by making the aggrieved community more largely to increase. The early persecutions in Judea prompted the spread of the gospel. Hence that when the, uh, after the death of Stephen, the disciples were all scattered abroad throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. The results is this given. Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. So too, when Herod stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church and killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, what came of it? Why, Luke tells us in almost the same words that Moses has used, the word of God grew and multiplied. Those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor by no means stayed the progress of the gospel, but strangely enough seemed to press forward for the crown of martyrdom. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than as when her foes were most fierce to assail and most uh, resolute to destroy her. And he ends by, Be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials that you may be called upon to bear. And be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel and the honor of Christ. We can see that purpose as well, that even in the midst of opposition and suffering, God uses it for growth. Here, the, the growth of the Israels, us, maybe even the growth of our own faith as we, we face that. And finally, I would say one of the big reasons that God could allow suffering it showed their need for a Savior. The same is true for ourself. That these Israelite people, they were living a great life in Egypt, but Egypt is not where God had them planned to be. He was going to bring them to the promised land. He was going to bring them as a great nation. He was going to bring them out and make him his people, and they needed a Savior. And so with suffering they experienced at the hand of the Egyptians showed them that they truly needed to be saved. It showed them that they needed someone to bring them out. And the same is true with us, that when God is using suffering in our lives, it's showing us that we have a need, that we don't have it all together, that we can't manage this thing we call life. We can't come somehow white-knuckle it to make it good. We need someone to save us. We we need someone to control events to make them better for us. We need someone to bring us out of it. We need a Savior. That I think this actually shows us the truth of the Christian life, that the Christian life is a cross-shaped life. Then when we look at why God allows suffering, the very fact is that God uses suffering for His glory and our salvation. And if that strikes you odd, just think of the cross. 
For on the cross, we see the greatest example of how God uses suffering, pain, oppression for our good. For on the cross, the innocent Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, goes to the cross so that He could take our sins upon Himself and give us His right standing before His holy God. That God uses pain and suffering to what? Bring about the greatest thing ever in the history of the world, and that's salvation for those who believe in Jesus. That through pain, God uses Jesus to save us. And if that's how our Savior saves, doesn't it make sense that our whole life is a cross-shaped life? That now when we look upon our life, we see how God is using suffering, God is using oppression, God is using these events that we might wonder, why would you use this? But the fact is, He's using it to grow us and make us more like our Savior. And we see this again and again through the books of the Bible. That Paul speaks about this. He can say crazy things, like in Romans 5 when he says, talking about he's rejoicing in, in, in who God is, is not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That Paul can say we can rejoice even in our sufferings. Why? Because we know the one who stands behind them. We know the one who stands behind all events. We know the one who's orchestrating them for our good. We know who he is. We have seen his character revealed as he saves us through his son. And so now we can actually rejoice when hardship hits. Why? Because we know it's making us more like our Savior. It's making us more like Christ. And it's going to produce in us hope. A hope that doesn't disappoint. A hope that the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts as Paul continues to go. Paul picks this up again and again in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. Paul as he's, he's talking about, hey, I could come become conceited because of all these great things that God is working through me. And because of that danger, God sent him a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was, but something pained him. Something that he experienced was he was undergoing suffering so much that he prayed three times that God would remove him. And what was God's response to him? It says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content in weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the cross-shaped life that we're all called to. That God has to sometimes use suffering to wake us up. Because otherwise, we think we have it all together. Otherwise, we think we don't need God. Otherwise, we think we can somehow do this on our own, be good enough, shine great enough, manage whatever we want, fulfill our dreams, do this or do that. We think we got it. But sometimes God uses suffering to wake us up and say, no, we need him. For it's not in our strength in which we're strong. The cross says it's in our very weakness that we're strong in Christ as he works in us. So we can see there's very real reasons why God would use suffering as he used it here to grow the people and prepare them to be his people. 
And then finally we see this a great example at the end of the chapter that God is at work even as we live out our faith. Some people might take the concept that God is at work in events and God is even working on suffering and say, well, that means we can sit back and relax, right? We don't have to do anything. We don't have to do what he's called us to do. But I think this example is given us because it's a faithful example of people knowing what is right, knowing who has called them to be, and doing what they're called to do. And so what this example is, is we see Pharaoh, he's getting kind of scared, right? He's scared of these, of these uh, Israelites, and he's scared they're going to become a fighting force. And so he calls the, the midwives, probably the head of the midwives, to him and says, hey, when they give birth, before you pass that baby back to their mom, examine the baby, and if it is a male, kill it. And if it's female, give it back to its mom. What a horrible command. That he would look at these midwives, women who are dedicated to the bringing of life into this world, and ask them to take it out. That he would command them to look upon these little born babies and make that decision and make that act to kill them to eradicate the male. But we get this example of these midwives, uh, Shifra and Puha, who are these head midwives, and they choose not to listen to this command. They hear an ungodly command to go against what they know is right, to go against what they know is true, and the text says they feared God, and so they did not listen to Pharaoh. And so they had a godly action in response to this ungodly command. They ignored it. And so they lived up to their names because it's interesting, these names mean beautiful one and splendid one, that these two midwives lived up to their names. They said, no, we're going to stand true to what we know is right, and we're not going to take their lives of these kids. It's funny because a lot of people look at this and they can say, well, this raises so many moral questions. Is it, is it right to lie to authorities? Is it right to, to sin in that way, to save lives? And people can debate about that. But it's funny, when you look at their responses, I would, I would almost say they don't, they don't even lie. They're mocking Pharaoh to his face. Just think about the logic of the face. When he comes back to him and says, hey, ladies, well, why didn't you kill all the babies? And what do they say? They say, oh, Pharaoh, you got to understand, these guys you're scared of, these Israelites, they're so vigorous that we don't even need to be here. Midwives don't even need to be around because they have babies even before we get there. Like, we can't even do what you have. You can see how they're mocking Pharaoh to his face. These Israelites you're scared of, they're so vigorous, they're so healthy, they're so hardy, you probably should be scared of them, that we can't even perform our duties. I don't even know why we're here as midwives. Like, they're just mocking him to their face, to his face. And so, and, and, and clearly, God looks upon favor of these midwives. It says so that God, that they found favor in God's eyes. He gave them families, that they did what they're supposed to do. And so we can see how this is a good action that God says, hey, them defying Pharaoh is a good action. And we can realize that. We don't have to get bogged down into these moral questions, whether this is good or bad, because we see the result that they saved lives. 
That when we look at these maybe more modern examples, I mean, these examples of there's a, there's a French uh, a town during World War II that this small little town saved over 5,000 Jews, actually became known as the safest place in Europe for Jews. Why? Because they knew what was right and they stepped up and they said, we're going to save these people who should not be killed. And chances are they deceived the authorities and they had to lie, but we could see that and say, we know that is right. But when you look at these two midwives and probably the many midwives that served under them because the Israelite people were so many, we see an example of people who lived out their faith. I don't think they doubted that God was in control, but they lived out their faith. They say, we know what is right and we're going to do what is right. We know what is right, and even when we're pulled before Pharaoh, the man who's enslaving our people, the man who's ordering us to kill people, we're going to say to his face, yeah, man, we can't do it. They knew what was right, and from that I think we see a great example of how we're called to live out our faith, even even in the face of opposition, oppression, and suffering. That we're supposed to call, we're supposed to respond to this fact that we know that God is at work. We know God is at work in these events that we can stand true, that no matter what comes our way, no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what is coming against us, we can stand firm and say, I am doing what God has called me to do, and I will not be moved. Now, I'm so thankful that we live in a country that we are not going to face kind of this option anytime soon, whether taking life or not taking life. I'm, I'm so thankful we live in a country that has this great freedom that we can, we can gather here and praise God together. And we have no fear of the authorities busting in and dragging us off to tri- uh, jail like they do in other countries. I'm very thankful for that. But the fact is that as our culture changes, as we kind of see it changing, as society maybe drifts further and further away from how we are called to live as Christ followers, as, we, as it does that, we're going to experience more and more pressure, more and more uh, temptation to give in and follow a suit. We're going to experience more and more calls maybe to abandon what we're called to do by God and follow the world. And in the face of those temptations or those slight pressures or those maybe even societal um, um, temptations or, 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 or oppression, we're called to stand firm, even in the small things. That we know what we're called to do as we read the Bible and we know who God has called us to be. That we're called to love boldly. We're called to serve with all of our heart. We're called to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. We know these facts and we stand on them. And we don't let the world dictate to us how we live or how we live our faith. And as we experience that more and more, we should look at examples like this more and more and say this is how we stay true. But even in the midst of the pressures, even in the midst of that, we don't focus so, so much on how well we can stay true because we might fail, we might slip up, we might mess up, but we focus on the one who stands behind it. We focus at the one who's in charge of it. We focus on the God who is in all of these events, God who loves us and cares for us, and we focus on our Savior and knowing that he's bringing us home in the end. So we focus on him, that God is at work even in our faith as we seek to live for him. God is at work as we live out our faith.
So what does this mean for us as we read this story, as we set the story of Exodus as it goes forward? Well, I kind of already outlined it, but, outlined it, but the big one is we trust God in all circumstances. We trust God is at work, that when we look upon our life, when we look upon where we are, when we look upon what's going on, we trust God. We might not always see how he's working or understand why he's working this way, but we trust God because we know of who he is through the word. We know his character. We know how he loves us, and we know how he's promised these great things to us and how he's working in all these events for our good. We trust that, and so we trust God. That means we don't open up the newspaper, we don't click on, if you get a newspaper anymore, or we don't click on your news online, or however you receive what's going on in the world, and we don't despair. We could grieve what's going on in the world, and we could orchestrate things to fight against the atrocities we see, but we don't despair because we trust God. We know He is bigger than whatever we read in the headlines. We trust in Him, and we don't despair. And it means that when you are faced with suffering, which you will be faced with suffering, you don't despair. You grieve. You might weep. You even ask why. But you don't despair. Because you know who God is. You know His love. And you stand on his truth. That he's working all of these things for our good to make us more like his son. And then you stand true. You stand strong. That when you're tempted to give in to pressure, oh, it's okay, I can laugh at that joke in the office, no one cares. When you're tempted to give in to that pressure, oh, I can, I can go hang out with those people and do what they do. It's not going to matter. When you're tempted to maybe make those smaller decisions that add up to bigger decisions, when you're tempted and maybe you face oppression, that when the people are pressuring to do this, which you know is not right because of who you are as a Christ follower, when you're tempted, you stand firm. You stand strong. And you ask yourself, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear society, Pharaoh? Or are you going to fear God and walk in his ways? And you stay true to who he's called you to be. Because you know that God is at work as we live out our faith. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, that we can grow from it that we can be your people in all these things. Lord, I just pray for us as, as we study through Exodus, as we, as we read your word, that we can see the truth of who you are, that we can see the truth of how you love us and how you save your people, and we can use that to encourage us to be yours in all of our life. Lord, I just pray that we can be your people as we trust and know that you're our God who loves us and is working for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.